0: you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 34, continue our look there at this directory of worship that's given to us. And so far we've seen, as we've looked at this passage, that worship is, uh, is not a single and simple thing, but it's multifaceted. It's designed that way. And if we think about it, it really couldn't be any other way. It has, to, it has to be something a little more complex. Man was made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God, uh, we're meant to glorify Him. But that glorying is done by revealing Him. And He's an infinite God. He has an infinite number of, of uh, attributes. We number some of them from Scripture. But He's not limited by our minds. And, and if we're going to worship Him aright, we've got to get some sense of all that's contained there and 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 drink in the fullness of, of who He is. We must do justice in our worship to the one we're revealing by our worship. And that's supposed to be part and parcel of, of what we do when we gather on a Sunday morning like this, is that we we take the time to focus on some of the realities and the glories of this great God and King. Worship has to rise to accommodate the glory of the one that we're actually worshiping. And stop and think about it for just a second. Everything about Him is wonderful. Everything about Him is laudable. Everything about Him is praiseworthy nothing in our God that is defective or dark or that anyone needs to apologize for or that needs to be excused or hidden in any way. Sometimes people, maybe you've been pressed into that corner I, uh, a few years ago when the tsunami came. And, of course, we call certain things like that acts of God. And, and I heard some who felt almost like they had to apologize for God. He needs no apology. Everything he does is holy and just and upright and true. And even when we consider the enemy who acts still in this sinful world, nevertheless, under under God's hand. And God never lets him go too far But only to accomplish what God will eventually bring absolute good and excellence out of. We don't have to apologize for our God. And yet, and yet sometimes, sometimes we might feel that way. There's nothing shameful in Him. There's nothing about Him that cannot be absolutely exposed and examined in public. He's pure and true and Absolute. There's nothing considered in Him or about Him that isn't pure or isn't holy and that isn't worth our contemplating and that in the very act of contemplating it changes us, moves us, sanctifies us, makes us more like Himself. We had it read for us there in that passage in 2 Corinthians 4.18. It's in this very act of exposing ourselves to the greatness of his glories that the believer is transformed from one glory to the next. We're, we're made more like him just by the being exposed to his goodness and his greatness and his grace. Back in Philippians chapter four, Paul writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. It's a directory to think on Christ, to look at Him and say, He is the truth, absolutely true, and He is honorable, and He is just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent. He's worthy of praise and ought to think on him. And I'll tell you, when your mind is saturated with those great truths of him, it doesn't go in some other places. In the Song of Solomon in chapter 5 and verse 16, the bride writing to the groom, or about the groom, says, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. Or if you've got it in the King James, altogether lovely. This is my beloved, my friend, O oh daughters of Jerusalem. That's what we're doing here today. We're saying to one another, I want you to know my beloved. I want you to know my friend. And he's altogether lovely. He's altogether worth your love and your devotion. He's altogether worthy of everything that you can possibly imagine. He is so wonderful. So we've seen at the very beginning of this passage in verse 1 that worship is meant to be a way of life. If, if all we're doing is coming once a week and getting together and, and going through the motions, that isn't worship. If if we aren't filling ourselves with the glories of God during the week, we're not entering into the fullness of what we were made for to to reveal this great God of glory, and that worship is meant to be witness to to speak to others of the greatness of our God, and it's a corporate activity. We don't do it just by ourselves, but we we gather together so that our voices are multiplied, and the and the roar of the church is heard as we lift up the name of our Christ, and that worship is meant to incorporate personal testimony of how God has saved us and delivered us and encouragement to one another and how He's been faithful and kept us and that it's meant to be remembrance. It's good to go back and rehearse how the Lord has met you in times past and to do that for one another. That brings us to verse 7. Verse 7 reads that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Our seventh consideration then in worship is that worship is to be instruction. Worship as instruction. David's reference here to the angel of the Lord is one that's meant to instruct us in the ways of God and how he deals with his people even when we can't see him. And there are those times when he doesn't seem to be visible. But we need to be instructed in His ways and know those things from His Word so that we're not just surmising or imagining. And it evokes a whole series of images from elsewhere in the Word. This is especially aimed at bringing Christ, I think, right into the the center of our worship. Whether or not the angel of the Lord, as as the term is used here, is expressly meant to talk about the pre-incarnate, visitations of Christ. There's places in Scripture where it's absolutely clear that that's who the angel of the Lord was. And then there's other places where the angel of the Lord is mentioned and we're not sure exactly. It's it's not that clear who he was. The The angel of the the Lord is the one who slew 180,000 in a single night. And it's the angel of the Lord who was the death angel who passed over in Egypt. And it's the angel of the Lord who led the Israelites into the promised land he takes on those various characteristics but whether or not this is specifically speaking of christ in this passage or in any particular passage whenever the angel of the lord is mentioned in scripture we're always met with the same idea that god's presence or his actions are being announced that's that's right where david wants to take us at this moment the instruction in this psalm would seem to be that god's people are are to walk full well knowing that God is always near him, that his own special messenger is always at hand, in fact, that he encamps around us. It's an important thing for us to, to know. Sometimes we think we're really quite all alone, and that's never the truth. Husbands, when you speak sharply to your wives, Christ is there. The angel of the Lord encamps around you. Wives, when you retort and speak to your husbands in certain ways, you should know that the Lord is there. Children, when you speak to your parents or disobey, and parents in the ways that you deal with your children. We do all these things as Christians in God's presence. We're never out of it. That's precisely the point. And that ought to stir us to consider what it is we do and what it is we say and and how we do that because the angel of the Lord is encamped around us. I mean, the first way we understand this is that He doesn't simply visit us from time to time. He dwells with us. That was the great pronouncement in Matthew that, that they were to call His name, Christ's name, Emmanuel, God with us. Not God who just came for a visit and left. That's why he tells the disciples that he will be with them always, even unto the end of the age. And that he'll send the Spirit so that his presence is, is with us always. Do you think about that when you're gossiping? That he's there. Do you think about that in in when you let your mind meditate on things that are impure and unholy, that he's there? Not not to somehow live us, make us live in a perpetual uh, stream of guilt, but to make us know that we we live truly in the presence of our God. He's there to purify. He's there to cleanse. He's there to forgive. He's there to lead, to guide, to move us away from those things where our sinful nature would take us. But He's with us. He's with us when we talk to one another. He's with us when we talk about one another. My dad always says, it's pretty hard to gossip about somebody if you're on your knees. That's the best place to talk about people, to the Father, because he's in your presence. Christ is is here. He's he's not simply visiting us. He he dwells with us. But, But the second thing you need to see in this passage is an unusual phrase altogether. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. That's an interesting thought. It be one thing to say that the angel of the Lord camps in our midst, or the angel of the Lord camps with us or, or near us, but to say that he camps around us evokes an entirely different image, doesn't it? The image is probably taken out of Second Kings, chapter six. Turn back there for just a moment. Second Kings, chapter six. And if it's not taken from here, at least the idea is identical. In chapter 6, picking up in verse 8. Once, when the king of Assyria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God, that would be Elijah in this, or Elisha in this place, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass by this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him, and thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. This was an ongoing thing. king of Syria, who was at war with Israel, would say, I'm going to do this or that to his men. And all of a sudden, the king of Israel would seem to have that information and act on it and save his own neck. Now, Verse 11, the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? We've got a traitor, and I want you to out him. I want you to tell us who he is. Verse 13, or verse 12 says, one of his servants replied, well, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. I mean, you can't say anything without this guy getting information. And so he said, well, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, behold, he's in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. That's the city where Elisha was. Now, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, Elisha had a, a man who Helped him, attended him, a a junior in training, if you will. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and he went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elijah said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please Open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots, of fire, all around Elijah. Oh, that God would open our eyes at times to see, especially in times of worship. That when we come to a a place like this, in a time like this, it's not just... That, that somehow God's presence might come and might somehow go. But because the host of the redeemed is here, at least part of this body of Christ, he's, he encamps around us. He's here in our midst. And the question is, do we enter into worship with that in mind? Or do we come here as, as, as though it's just another exercise? Another thing we do. Oh, it's Sunday. Haven't been there in a while. Should show up in church. The angel of the Lord encamps around His people. He's he's here to be met, to be experienced, to be worshipped. It's when we see Him and know Him that worship takes on the dimension that it's meant to have. The angel of the Lord encamps around us. Worship is not a religious ritual to an absentee deity. It's the instructing of our own souls and one another in the reality of His presence among us, even when our senses are devoid of detecting it. Ultimately, we should know better than we feel. Sometimes we don't feel. The feeling can't be the arbiter of truth. The arbiter of truth has to be God's Word And He's with us. There's times when we're distracted and that just doesn't seem right, does it? We come into worship and and a host of other things have already crowded into our minds. We're not thinking about the things that are pure and the things that are lovely and the things that are wholesome and the things that are holy. We're thinking about when we get out. And we're thinking about who we're going to vote for later this week. And we're thinking about if this one gets into office, what's going to happen? If that one gets into office, what's going to happen? We're we're thinking about a million different things. And where's worship in that? Where's acknowledging the presence of our great God and King? Of the living God among His people and around us? I can... Only imagine what the Hopponins went through yesterday as the funeral for their 22-year-old son was carried out. I'll tell you what they needed to know. The Lord, the angel of the Lord was encamped around them. He was in their midst. and that, And that even though he was undetectable by personal sense, he's there. Worship bids us to to come here together with with our hearts and minds fully engaged in the reality that we've come as a group to encounter the living God and to worship Him, to be stunned by Him again, awed by Him, thrilled by Him, overwhelmed by Him, to glory in Him. Might I say that this is not true for those who are outside of Christ? And maybe you are not one of those today, who's who's born again. You can know nothing of what we're talking about with this great Christ and King who encamps around His people. You are left to your own imagination. You're left to some very vapid things. Second, the second chapter of Ephesians always terrifies me with one phrase when it talks about all before we come to the saving knowledge of Christ. And these these twin truths of being without God and in the world are terrifying. It's as though He's saying you're without a boat and you are in the midst of shark-infested waters. There is no hope. You can't know the joy that we know of this great Christ, but it's who we invite you to know today. Really and truly. Back in, in 1 Kings, when the prophet Elijah had squared off with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, there had been this great contest, this great opportunity for the people of God to really declare themselves again as those who worship the true and the living God and not the, and not the false gods that had been around them. Elijah has them up on the mountain and he tells them, go ahead, these prophets of Baal, go ahead, make your sacrifice, put it on the altar and call down fire from heaven and see if it will be consumed. And they, it says that they started early in the morning and they fasted and they cut themselves and they cried out to their God and they danced and chanted. And then, and then when nothing happened after hours in 1 Kings 18, Elijah says that at noon Elijah mocked them and he said, cry aloud. For he is a God. Maybe you just need to cry louder. Either he's musing, he's thinking, or maybe he's relieving himself. Or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. That's the only thing that the lost have to cling to, is some vapid hope that maybe if they cry loud enough, maybe they'll wake up their God. We want you to know the true and the living God. It's not so. He encamps with his people around them. Surrounding them so that, so that anything that occurs never happens outside of His watchful care. What a place to live. What a cause for worship. That's what we do when we come and preach the Word to one another is remind each other, instruct each other in this wonderful way of God with His people that He, He surrounds us and delivers us. And then there's verse 8. He moves from, from this instruction into this invitation. Worship as invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Now, this invitation has got to be understood in two ways at least. First, it is, in, especially in its context, a call to Believers. And it's a call to you and me this morning as worshipers of God. It's a call to stir ourselves up to real Christian experience and not let mere theological knowledge or ritual take the place of genuine relationship with God. Taste and see are the words. Not just think about, not just theorize about, not just theologize about, but taste and see. And those of you that know Christ this morning, Christians... Let me ask you, do you let the truth of God and His goodness and greatness still move you? Or have you grown cold and hard? Does He still move you? Does the, does the splendor and the spectacle of His death at Calvary still do something to you? Or is it just in the catalog of facts that you've, Stored away. Does His love still inflame your heart? Are you sensibly filled with gratitude for His blessings? Or or is it just lip service? Does your heart wound you when, you're, when you sin? Or do you, you simply say, well, you know, He died to take care of that and and that's fine and let's move on. Does humility wash over your soul after you've come to a time of worship like this? And you say, how great is this God that I've come to see? Just remind you how glorious He is and, and what grace it took to save your soul. Or do you come to church and then leave as cold and as unmoved as you were before you got here? Do you stir yourself up to take hold of Him? Do you? Do you enter into the fullness of who He is? Do you taste Him when you come together? When you've, when you've left worship time together, do you grow more tender and more merciful? When, when you've left time in His presence, does your joy increase? Does your peace deepen? Does your long-suffering extend yet further? Does your kindness overflow? Does your gentleness and thankfulness swell? Do you love Him more? Do you fear Him more? Do you trust Him more? Or did you get together with the saints of God and sing the songs and hear the prayers and go into His Word and leave the same way you came? Then can we say we've worshipped? If our hearts haven't been melted, if something more hasn't touched our souls, have we worshipped? Or have we just gone through the religious ritual? Is He dearer to you after these times together? Is His name more precious and His cause more motivating? To seeing Him begin to eclipse the hurts and the disappointments and the sorrows and the griefs and the concerns and the doubts? Or is it just momentary? Are you tasting Him when you worship? David says, taste and see. The Lord is good. He's sweet to the taste. He's lovely and satisfying. And the joy of our souls. And so I ask you, have you met with Him that way today? Did you come anticipating that today? Planning on doing that today? Was your heart moved in the music and in the prayers? Have you stirred yourself up to make sure... He didn't come here with the the brethren and walk out having only spent time with us, but remained insensible to His presence. That's what I ask. On this verse, Calvin writes this. He says, The psalmist indirectly reproves us for our dullness in not perceiving the goodness of God, which ought to be known to us more than a matter of simple knowledge. By the word taste, he at once shows that, that we are without taste, and at the same time, he assigns the reason of this to be that we devour the gifts of God without relishing them. What a wonderful thought. Maybe a great way to pierce our own souls on that. Do you, do you devour the things of God without relishing them? I stopped the other night for a slice of pizza on the way home, got a Little place around the corner that always has a slice, a hot slice of pepperoni pizza waiting in the case when I drive by. And I stopped and I, I said, Can I have my slice of pizza? And the gal brought it over to the counter and she said, Do you want me to wrap it up? I said, Wrap it. I'm going to inhale it before I get. Wrap it. That, that's just fighting through nothing. Are you that way with God? Do you take Him in? When you go to the Word, do you relish what you read? Or does it just go in one ear and out the other? When you listen to those who preach and teach on the radio or the web or wherever you get those additional things, do you relish what you hear? Or is it forgotten before you're two blocks down the street? Taste and see. Christian, taste them again. Experience them again. Don't, don't just let all of this be relegated to some to some theoretical place. Calvin continues that, that therefore we are to call on us to stir up our senses and to bring a palate endued with some capacity of tasting. That God's goodness may become known to us or rather made manifest to us. David's meaning, therefore, is that there's nothing on the part of God to prevent the godly whom he particularly speaks of in this place from arriving at the knowledge of his goodness by actual experience. For from this it follows that they are also infected with the common malady of dullness. This doctrine is confirmed by the promise immediately added that blessed is the man who trusts in in him for god never disappoints the expectations of those who seek his favor our own unbelief is the only impediment which prevents him from satisfying us largely and bountifully with abundance of all good things oh taste and see the lord is good christian has it been a while since you've done that has it been a while since you've just immersed yourself in his goodness and really really sat long and 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 drunk hard at his well, it's a good place for us to be. That's that's what worship is about—to stir up the heart. John Flavel, one of my favorite of the Puritan writers. I want I want you to hear I want you to hear the heart of a man on fire for God, just on, in flames. And see if this doesn't, doesn't make you want to draw to the same place. And make that determination that you're not going to just come to God's house and and be here and pass the time. He says, If if every leaf and spire of grass, nay, all the stars and sands and atoms, were so many souls and seraphims whose love should double within them every moment to all eternity, yet it would fall infinitely short of what is due His worth and excellency. Suppose a creature composed of all the choice endowments that ever dwelt in the best of men since the creation of the world, in in whom you find a meek Moses and a strong Samson and a faithful Jonathan, a beautiful Absalom, a a rich and wise Solomon. Nay, and add to this the understanding, strength, agility, splendor, and holiness of all the angels, it would amount but to a dark shadow of this incomparable Jesus. Who ever weighed Christ in a pair of balances? Who has seen the foldings and plates, the heights and depths of the glory that is in Him? Oh, for such a heaven, but to stand afar off and see and love and long for Him, while time's thread be cut and, the, and His great work of creation be dissolved. Oh, if I could yoke in among the throng of angels and seraphims and now glorified saints and could raise a new love song to Christ before all the world. I'm pained with wondering at new opened treasures in Christ. If every finger, member, bone, and joint were a torch burning in the hottest fire of hell, I would they could all send out love praises, high songs of praise forevermore to that plant of renown, to that royal and high prince, Jesus my Lord. But alas, his love swelleth me and finds no vent I mar his praises, nay, I know no comparison of what Christ is and what he is worth. All the angels and all the glorified praise him, not so much as in halves. Who can advance him or utter all his praise? Oh, if I could praise him, I would rest content to die for love of him. Oh, I would to God, I could send in my praises to my incomparable well-beloved or, or cast my love songs of that matchless Lord Jesus over the walls that they might light in His lap before men and angels. But, but when I've spoken of Him, till my head rive, I've said nothing. I may say again, I may begin again, a Godhead, a Godhead is a, is a world's wonder Set ten thousand, thousand new-made worlds of angels and elect men, and double them in number ten thousand, thousand, thousand times. Let their hearts and tongues be 10,000 times more agile and large than, than the hearts and tongues of the seraphims that stand with the six wings before Him. And when they have said all for the glorifying and praising of the Lord Jesus, they've spoken little or nothing. Oh, that I could even wear out this tongue in extolling His Highness, but it is my daily admiration that I'm confounded with His incomparable love. Thus have His enamored friends faintly expressed His excellencies. And if they have therein done anything, they've shown the impossibility of His due praises. And we sit unmoved. Have we worshipped? Have we seen? we come ready to rejoice together around the throne and and see Him on the cross and bow there in such wonder. (laughs) Worship is meant to be the the tasting and seeing of how good our God is. And not just the, the remarking about it. But second, in these words, taste and see, there's there's also a call to the unconverted. If the converted are called to taste and see how good He is because we know Him by experience, so too the unconverted. That, that account that we had read in John chapter 4, hadn't you hear Jesus at the well and He's saying to her, Oh, if you just knew the gift, if you had some sense of the gift, you'd be asking Me. And I'd give you... Water that would would rise up and be springs of living water within you. Spurgeon preached it this way. He says, dear Christian friends, I've spoken to you of this taste. But among us this morning, in the galleries and down below here, there's a goodly sprinkle of men who do not know Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you. They've come up to this house of prayer Not that they might know Christ, but that they might see a congregation and amuse themselves by the novelty of it. How many may have come with this miserable object? Well, let them come for whatever they like. We're glad to see them. For being in the way, God met with them. Now to such of you who are not believers in Christ and have never tasted that He's gracious, we say this to you. Oh, taste and see. By which we mean experience is necessary. Taste and see. You cannot see without tasting. If you would know whether religion is good, whether Christ is good, you must try Him. It's not rubbing bread upon the cheek. It's tasting. You must have an inward sense of the things of God. My son, give me your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let the heart believe in Jesus, be not content with ceremonies, rest not satisfied with outward morality. Only that which reaches the core will really affect affect the fruit of the tree. We must make the fountain pure or else our filtering stream is all in vain. Taste and see, dear hearers, I cannot insist too earnestly upon this. Get an inward religion, a vital godliness, which goeth into the secret parts of the belly and dwells in the inner man. Nothing but tasting can save your souls. And then we may say, taste and see. We are quite sure that if you will taste, you will see that the Lord is good. I bear my willing witness that Christ makes a man blessed. That religion is a happy thing. And that her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. But you do not believe me. Then taste and see for yourselves. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. May the Spirit of God lead you to give your heart to Jesus and you will find that the true religion of God, of Jesus is a good thing for you. A good thing for you, young woman. A good thing for you, young man. A good thing for the, the trader, for the gentleman, for the artisan. Good for every one of you. We feel very earnest that you should do this and therefore we say to you, "Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do not despise our invitation. We beseech you by the mercies of God to give your hearts to Jesus from our very souls as though we pleaded for our own lives, we would beseech You. Give the things of God a patient consideration. Believe in Jesus. This is to taste. Trust Christ. This is to taste and see that the Lord is good. Yes, I know you will turn on your heel and say that religion is a good thing for Sundays, but you do not see anything in it for everyday life. Oh, oh dear sir, It is for want of knowing better you say that. If you would but taste and see, you would regret that you had not tasted before and you would rejoice and bless the Lord that you were brought to taste at last. If you don't know Christ, that's what we call to you for. Taste and see. There's forgiveness in Him. There's reconciliation to the Father in Him. There there is new life in Him. There's deliverance in Him. Taste and see. Child of God, that's what we we come to do in our worship. To instruct ourselves in the ways of the Lord with His people. And to invite one another again to recall in our hearts and minds the great glory of what it means to truly live and experience our living God. Don't be satisfied with, with a heartless emotionless religion. Emotion's not everything. That's obviously true. Our emotions can lead us to believe a lot of things that aren't true. But if we hear what's true and our emotions aren't stirred by it, then we have to wonder what we really believe. The truth of Christ ought to grip us and change us. And when we come to worship, be ready to, to, to meditate and to thrill to those things fresh and anew. Oh, what a glorious God He is. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the truth of Your Word. I thank You for Your loving kindness and and that you You are a God who gives a salvation that is authentic, one that is experienced and not just merely theorized about or speculated on. I know that I sit amidst a group of people who can testify to the, the personal reality of, of having come to the knowledge of their sinfulness and then of Your great forgiveness of those sins and the washing away of them in the blood of the Lamb. And I pray that, that as we look forward to days of worship in the future, that these seasons together won't, won't ever be times when we just go through the motions but that we'll recognize the deceitfulness of our own hearts and the need to be stirred up again to take hold of Christ in His fullness. To not be content with just thoughts, but to, to press on till we are consumed with Him. Lift our eyes and, and help us to see Him in more and more glorious ways till it's all we can talk about. And for any here father who who do not know you in your saving grace, oh may today be the day, oh would you would you pierce their hearts through? Don't let them leave here the way they came in. You've been so gracious to me, so gracious to a a host here. Show them great grace this morning too. Open their eyes to the the depths of their sin and lostness. And then lift their eyes to the cross of Calvary. Oh, let Christ be all in all to them today. We want to taste you. We want to see you. We want to know you. In the fullness of which You mean that for us. And we plead those things in Christ's precious name. Amen.